morning. Let us uh, pray and we'll get started. As a precursor, uh, get a pen because I, after I printed this, there are things I realized I wanted to add to it. And so you have a little bit of space in the back, so you'll be writing some stuff. Forgive me. Uh, that's my bad. So let me pray to get us started here. Uh, Father God, we're just so thankful to be uh, with your people today. We are thankful to be one of your people, Lord. We know that this is truly a, a free gift from your mind. It's nothing that we coerced you to do. It's nothing that we bribed you to do. It's nothing that we somehow add to it, uh, nor can we take away, and we do not somehow maintain it or sustain it uh, gift the salvation is a is a full gift from you from beginning to end and we are just so grateful that you have made us vessels of mercy lord there is no other way that we could be right with a righteous god if it wasn't uh, for your will and your sending of your precious son jesus christ now, father just prepare our hearts and minds uh, so that we can learn today about your word and we can speak on uh, membership lord uh, we are a body, and I just pray that um, these things are sufficient to help encourage us in that reality and truth, um, and that we would walk out of here more convinced that we are not a Christian on an island, but that we are a body of believers, and there are things we are called to do, and they're also, not only are we commanded, Lord, but these things are of great benefit to our soul and a great witness to the lost. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so for those coming in, you have notes on the wings. Uh, you will definitely need a pen because I added stuff after the fact. So um, first thing I kind of want to start with is I, I can't remember if Matthew said this directly, so I figured I'm just going to say it directly, and if, we, if we're double-dipping, it's not a problem. But we go to a church that is a Baptist church. That maybe seems obvious, um, but the importance of that is I think many of us probably don't know what a Baptist is, or what that means, or even if we know what it means, we don't know, biblically speaking, why it is. I sound a little like echoey in my head. Ah, better. Like it's getting louder in my brain. That's not good. Okay. So uh, I kind of want to just lay out real quick the Baptist distinctives for you. This is something you're going to write. So there are seven. No, eight. Wait, I can't count. There are seven. And here's the cool thing I found a way that it's following the acrostic Baptist. So just spell the word Baptist, and I'm going to give you all of them. So this is something just to have. I believe we are going to hit them all in this class, maybe not, not in this order, in this way, but I think this is an easy way to remember them. So starting with B, remember, and real quick, these are distinctive, so if it's not obvious, a distinctive is, remember, as, as a universal church, there are certain things that all believers believe, okay? We, we call these maybe the essentials of the faith, the fundamentals of the faith, uh, the reason or one of the reasons there are denominations is because in the attempt to be faithful to the word, there are certain things that people have disagreed upon in different seasons and different times. And these things aren't 
and I gotta always be careful with this because there's always an asterisk here. It's not an absolute what I'm saying. Nowadays, denominations are created for all sorts of reasons. But usually when you see it through history, it was done because there was a particular emphasis of something or the need of an emphasis at a time, and thus they had to separate. So distinctives are just things that specifically a, uh, a denomination would hold that is different from the rest of the universal church. Okay, so these, these are the eight. One B is biblical authority. Also, real quick, these distinctives are not exclusive only to baptism or Baptist. Some other denominations hold these things as well. So biblical authority is B. Uh, the A, for remember we're doing Baptist, A is the autonomy of the local church. Uh, P is the priesthood of the believer. The first T is two ordinances. The I is, we, we can call it individual soul liberty. Uh, this is, just to say in a different way, just so you understand it, it's the idea that no man should be constrained to do something that is against their conscience, okay? Um, S in Baptist would be saved, baptized church membership or church members. And uh, T is two offices. This refers to pa pastor and deacon. And I was trying to say Baptist plural, but I don't know how to roll that last S. So the S at the end is separation of church and state. So for those of you who just came in, uh, I'm just giving you an acrostic to know all the Baptist distinctives. It's using the word Baptists, and it's not on your notes. That's why I had to write them down. Does anyone need me to repeat any of them? Uh, yes. The last one? Yeah, the last S is separation of church and state. Okay? So, yes. Uh, two ordinances. Uh, the two ordinances are going to be the Lord's Supper and baptism, right? So I'm not going to describe, I mean, if there are any that I, you want me to kind of describe, I could, but since we're teaching the Baptist distinctive, you'll get through these, right? And you can always look these up. Today, we're specifically talking about um, membership, uh, being saved and Baptist, and then the, the implications of that, okay? Um, so I, like I was saying, uh, we are a Baptist church. It's important that we know that. Um, maybe I know for me, I didn't come here knowing what a Baptist was. I just came here and I heard the gospel. I was like, that's exactly right. I got to stay here. And it was over time that I began to learn it. And actually the way, the reason I started learning it is because I would tell people I'm in a Baptist church and they would make all these accusations. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so I had to examine and test and I saw what was false and what was true, et cetera, et cetera. So as an attending, uh, a consistent attending member, you need to know these things because one, I would never want you to be at a place that you actually disagree with fundamentally. And it can be easy, I wish it wasn't, but sometimes we can go day to day, Sunday to Sunday, and there are some things that aren't inherently touched on the surface every single Sunday, and you may not realize there's something you fundamentally disagree with. So, but ultimately, I don't, I'm not trying to say let's cause division. I want us to be united in these truths. I want you to see them. I want you to test them. And I want you to hold them wholeheartedly. I don't want us to fall in the tradition of I'm a Baptist because my mom was a Baptist or because that's just the church I'm going to. I want you to go beyond that if that's the case. And I want you to say, yes, I got introduced to being Baptist because I was living in a zip code or my family, inter my, I'm, my family were Baptist. However, comma, I looked into it and I, have, I can say for myself, this is something I believe scripture says.
period. Okay, so that's where I want this to be. Um, another thing I, I want to talk about is being a denomination, or be, I guess being humans, we are within time. So what that means is we can use history to kind of look back and see where we come from. And so I kind of want to give like a small little primer of like the Baptist history. I'm not, <laughs> please, I'm not going into this like in-depth, every single detail, every point. I just kind of want to get you the flow so you can understand that this wasn't just created, you know, behind the McDonald's down the street 20 years ago. You know, like there's reason that these things have happened. And so that's what the first thing we're going to touch today <clears throat> is actually a little bit of the history of how uh, the Baptist denomination started. So interestingly enough, we are in the month of October, and you're starting to notice that there are things in the foyer being popping up in ways of the Reformation Conference that we practice. So the reason we do the Reformation Conference in October is because some would say October 31st is the day that the Reformation started. I'm not going to be picky on that, but that day is chosen in particular because Martin Luther posted his 99 thesis 95, thank you, um, on the church door of his town, basically saying these are the things I think the church is doing wrong. And when I say church at this time, this would be the Roman Catholic church as, as they would have seen it, okay? This started off a big change of things and, and debates and arguments, and eventually what came out of this is, if you remember, this is called the Protestant Reformation. So, what, what came out of this is there was a seeking of like, look, hey, the church is wrong in these things. We believe the Bible says this. We need to get back to right living in light of the Bible. The church as a whole continued to say, nope, nope, nope. We're stuck in our ways. You ain't going to do it. And so they decided, well, am I going to side with man or am I going to side with God? And so this was a division that happened. Not that was ill, but it was because it was seeking to see the truth of Scripture. Okay? So... This happened in the 16th century, and out of this, there were three men who were kind of given the accolades of kind of being the heads of this movement that I believe God is sovereign over. God is always going to keep his people. God is always going to draw his people to uh, right thinking, and I think this is definitely something we can see in history in which God has done it. So these three people were Martin Luther, um, John Calvin, and um, the other Swiss guy, one second, my notes are getting crazy. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Now, from this, there are four kind of divisions that come out of the Protestant Reformation. There's the Lutherans. There's the Reformed, which will come to be known as, like, the Presbyterian group. There's the Anglican church that kind of comes out in this time. And then there is what we would call the Anabaptists. So can you guess which one we probably come from. <laughs> we come from the Anabaptist line. Now, as, as I was looking this up, it's crazy. Um, it's crazy, this history. Um, so I'm going to start saying this stuff, and it's going to sound like I'm, I'm not speaking truth, but I'm speaking truth, okay? So of these groups, the Anabaptists were hated by the other groups. Now, the reason this happens is because Although there was a separation from the Catholic Church and a lot of the bad stuff that the Catholic Church had was cut off, they were still holding on to things that I think we would agree should not be held on to. Two of those things are that at this time, many of the powers, the powerful nations of the world, church and state were together. Does this make sense? So the power of the church and the, 
the government over just all people went hand in hand. And one of the ways that that happened was it was very common at this time that to have all the privileges of citizenship in a nation, you would have to be baptized in the church, okay? Now, can you imagine, can you guess what kind of baptism was practiced at this time, considering that the Roman church has been kind of in this power, at least from the world's perspective? It's going to be infant baptism, right? So although these groups separate from the Catholic church, they do not drop that. Okay, they do not get rid of infant baptism, and they don't get rid of this idea of, like, church and state. Anabaptists are believers, like, you know what, I'm kind of scratching my head reading this Bible that you now translate into language I can read, and I realize that I think baptism is actually for confessing, professing believers, and I don't think infants can do that. Now, the name Anabaptist is actually like, well, do you guys know that the term Christian was actually like a slur against the believer, right? Uh, little cries, look at them trying to be like Christian, be like Jesus, be like Jesus. Anabaptist is also like a slur. It was one who was baptized again, right? So the reason why, like, and it's kind of interesting because we, this is just normal for us now, right? Like, yeah, you baptize believers, that's obvious. But them doing this was a very radical thing. One of the biggest fears that was coming up is like, wait a second, these guys are saying that you're not Christian unless you're baptized as a believer? If that's true, that would negate <laughs> so many people from the, 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 the professing believers. And then second, if they're saying that baptism must be professing believers, but we tie baptism and, uh, uh, what do you call it, rights and privileges as a citizen, dude, this is going to cause anarchy. This is going to be political disheaval if this comes through. So, they asked them once, hey, can you guys not do this? And they're like, sorry, that's what the Bible says. Ask them twice, now we're going to do it. Like, you know what, then we're just going to kill you. And so what ends up happening is Anabaptists, okay, so like these other denominations, they have like a head figure. Does that make sense? It's like, okay, Calvin, and then there's, there's Martin Luther. And, and Anabaptists do have distinctive members that stand out, but they never live long enough, do you understand? Because they're getting murdered. And so they believe what they say, they're going underground, they're, they're preaching, they get killed, they flee, they, flee, they go to another country, they spread their beliefs, people believe, people die there, and they're just moving, and they're just getting slaughtered everywhere they go, okay? Eventually, <clears throat> this eventually has a movement that comes to America, and that's kind of where we come from, right? So, interestingly, um, so we went for, they went from the Anabaptists, we just called Baptists eventually in, in 13 colonies, and interestingly enough, up until like maybe like Civil War era, Baptists would hold everything that we hold now, and we'll talk about what we hold. It wasn't until about that time that things started getting kind of watered down, and a lot of things that were just part and parcel with the uh, Protestant Reformation started getting removed or not held as hard, okay? Um, so, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, let's see. So, what, what, what theology came out of like the Protestant Reformation. Um, so we have these banners that say the solas, right? And so I don't know if everyone knows what these are, but essentially these are like the five main emphases of the Protestant Reformation, okay? Essentially all these points that we accept as of course, amen, the Catholic Church did not. And so it's not that the Protestant Reformation, they only believed these things, is that these were like the big banners that came out of it. 
Uh, a subsection of these five is something you guys may have heard as the five points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace. This is a subset of particular beliefs that came out in regards to salvation and the condition of man. Okay? Um, I'm going to quickly define these five for you. Yes? Yeah, so I, I can, ex- yeah, that's a good point. And this happens a lot in church history. Have you ever heard people try to argue you like, oh, the Trinity didn't come into existence until this council, and the books of the Bible weren't really built until this council? Look, these things were understood to be true. Eventually, some naysayers come up and try to essentially destroy this, and therefore the church responds with a very strong rebuttal. It's not that it was created then, it's just that now it's in, in conflict of being lost or distorted, and therefore the church responds and defends the church. Does that make sense? And so what he's saying is that the five points of Calvinism, when it was written the way it's declared, it wasn't just like, hey guys, let's just like believe these five points. They're actually rebuttals to a distorted understanding of salvation. The five points of Calvinism didn't just exist because they were made. They were held by the church until someone came up trying to distort it, and then they just reaffirmed them in a very clear and and in a documented way. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. Yeah. And and I just say this because this happens through a lot of beliefs and times in church history. You've got to be able to understand that. Yes, I think God is very... Uh, good at when there are times of like conflict where people are trying to say the Bible isn't this, the Bible isn't what it's supposed to be. God brings people the ability to defend it and to clarify and to codify these truths. Another way to think about it is think about creeds and confessions. Creeds and confessions, if accurate, are not documents that are adding to the Bible. They are simply very straightforward, summarized means of speaking biblical truths. Okay, one thing I kind of want to mention here, and and I tied this earlier when I said, like, sometimes we're just Baptists because we happen to be going to this church, and that's what they are, or that's what my family believes, that the reason why that happens often, and this can happen with beliefs in Christ, too, how many people do you know or you meet that they're like, oh, yeah, I learned all these things as a kid, Ah, but I don't believe them, or I don't know why they are, I just believe it because my mom told me. One problem with the preserving of biblical truth and the passing it down is sometimes people take shortcuts. And what do I mean by that? I think parents will understand this. If you're not careful and you don't make sure you go beyond this, you're going to set your kids for failure. Here's how it works. Okay, I'm a parent. I have a kid. I want to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, yeah? So I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So they're just kids. I can't just like give them like a catechism and make them read 100 questions in a day. I need to feed it to them in a style that they can understand. So maybe you just start with like one commandment and you get to 10 commandments and then maybe you practice a little song here or there and you're teaching them truths about the Bible. So they're learning actual truths of scripture. The problem that happens is as the kid matures, you never tell them the why. Do you understand what I'm saying? You tell them this is true, but you don't let them learn, but this is how you get to it. Don't trust me, trust what the word says. I'm only, this is only as good as the word says it. So what happens is you give them essentially like something without the work. And so what happens is maybe the first generation of kids are close enough to the parents. They're like, okay, I I know it and I kind of understand it. But 
the, the, ten, the tendency of people is to drift from truth. Does that make sense? It's just a natural tendency. So what happens is, okay, maybe the first generation after the really, like, strong believers, they still kind of got it. The next generation, ah, they've heard it a lot through, like, little, um, like, cute phrases, really simplistic things, and they don't know the reason why, but they'll hold to it. And then you get the people who are like, I don't know why we believe this. You know what? I don't want this. I'll do something else, right? All that to say... This is often what happens when it comes to beliefs in the denomination or things like that. So my encouragement to you is, yes, teach things simply when, when necessary. But don't forget, the way you make disciples is not just giving them the keys to the, ans- the answer key, but you teach them where to find those answers, how to do the digging. You do no one any good to give them all the answers and not the way to find it themselves. Because then all you're setting them up for is if they find someone who has a more persuasive set of answers, then they're going to drop yours for theirs. That's not what you want to do here, right? Kind of a side note, but I think that was important. Okay, so we're talking Anabaptists, Baptists, and then throughout American history, I don't know if you guys know this in terms of church history, the drifting is let's make access to Christ easier and easier and easier. And so it's like, you know, originally, you know, someone would would be like, hey, I'm convicted of sin. You were just preaching about sin. They're going to say things like, you know what, okay, let's go in a room. We'll spend whatever hours. We'll go through scripture. We'll really work through this. We'll pray about it. And you know what? It looks like you have a, a sincere belief in the Lord. But you know what? The Bible says that you won't just believe once, but that you will continue to believe. And that those who are saved are going to bear fruit. So let's walk through this with you and see if the Lord has actually done a work. And this is not an emotional response in the moment. But eventually, people, out of zealousness but without knowledge, they're like, no, that's too, I want to save a lot of people. You know what? I can make it real easy. Just come to the front, say this prayer, and we're good. And now eventually, even though that was fo- we think that's foolishness, that's the common understanding. I mean, how many people do you say, are you a Christian? Yeah. Why? Because I said a prayer. Or whatever crazy reason, right? The gospel is simple. You can teach it to a child. But it is infinitely de- in depth like there is no limit to its one, its complexity and its goodness and its 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 um its uh, nourishment to the believer so yes i can share the gospel in a minute to you but i will spend a lifetime and we will spend a lifetime learning how amazing and how good that is right and so what happens is people out of good thinking want to give the easy pass but you actually don't save someone like that. Oftentimes, you harden their heart to the actual process of salvation. How many people have you met that you're trying to give them the gospel, but they're like, I already know that stuff. I grew up at Sunday school. My brother's like that. He said, Wally, I've been a Christian for 14 years. I don't got to believe what you're saying. I said, you don't know what Christianity is. Yes, I do. I had a Bible. I went to church. I, I said a prayer. I was like, you don't know what Christianity is. But he won't listen because he thinks he already knows. Being part of a group superficially doesn't mean you are actually part of the group, right? And we're going to talk about that because the idea of what membership is and isn't, right? So, Baptists, we, oh, another thing. Um, I believe our church's trajectory is that we eventually want to be able to go under the, the title of Reformed Baptists. We're not there yet. And you're like, well, what do you mean we're not there? We got the solas. <laughs> we, we got the five points of cows. Why are we Reformed? Uh, this is another thing to think about, but one of the classic definitions of being a Reformed church is that you hold and teach from a creator confession. Now, we're getting there. If you look at our bookstore, we got the 19, what is it? 
Yeah, the United London Baptist Confession. There's a reason it's there. We're getting there. We're not quite there, but we're getting there, okay? Um, okay, finally to membership. I know that took a while, but I just want to lay out that foundation because I don't think we did it too much on the first day, and this kind of helps you kind of see the trajectory that we're going to. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I was going to do that. Mm, probably going to have to not do that. <laughs> so if you want to know about the five points of Calvinism and the doctrines of grace, one, you can Google it. More importantly, since we're in amongst brothers and sisters, you can just ask someone, or you can ask me afterwards, okay? But essentially, uh, these describe how salvation works, and we believe that God saves. It's really that simple. God saves sinner. That's the doctrines of grace right there. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yes, both. <laughs> both would be true. And I think we're getting there. If you've noticed, our church has become more formal in some things. And you might have wondered, like, why are we doing that? It's not just random. <laughs> like, I think because they believe a reformed tradition is much more faithful in, in practice. And so I think we're going that way. We're not there yet. I just don't think we've done it long enough for it to. I honestly don't know practically how that's going to work out. I'm sorry. <laughs> but one thing we understand is that if you try to use creeds and confessions apart from the Bible, you've kind of destroyed it. It's, you've self-destructed something, right? Creating confession is just a way that's all like, because remember, is the Bible topically organized? It's very, I mean, in some ways, yes, but in a lot of the doctrines that we hold to, it's not like this chapter is about justification and this chapter, it's all over. And so creating confession is just drawing all this stuff and putting it in a way that a finite human being likes to see, in organi organized, right, in topics. Yeah. Nice, yeah. And then speaking to Sheila's point, is there a danger with creeds and confessions? Of course, because there's a danger with everything. Your flesh will always try to use everything and anything to distort it. Why are there people who are like KJV-only people? Why are there people who are like, I don't want to hear anyone's teaching. I only need the Bible and the Holy Spirit. Now, that sounds so good, doesn't it? But what practically happens is they've completely ignored or taken out the fact that God has raised teachers and preachers. So what happens is they are saying we're being led by the Holy Spirit, but in reality, they're being led by their own thinking. They're hermeneutic. Yeah. Exactly. And and here's the thing. Do we should we have a desire to guard the word of God? Of course. But understand that that guarding uh, is, is like a, in, in one sense, it's an individual responsibility because you got to do it with yourself and with the family that you're responsible for, and then we need to do it corporately, you know? So just make sure it's always something you do. Just because you now have creeds and confessions doesn't mean, okay, now I need to put my guard up. You always need to have your guard up. You always need to be uh, capturing every straight thought. You always need to be renewing and examining yourself. That's never been something that disappears, right? So going to what I'm supposed to teach about... <laughs> Okay, biblical teaching on local membership. Okay, so I just want to go, so I just want to kind of, I, I found something that talked about like what the church is and what it isn't. It's just a little brief summary. I just want to kind of go over that. So what is not the church? The church is not 
a loose affiliation of people who hold roughly the same religious beliefs, no matter what those beliefs might be. I'm not joining a religious club when I join a church. The church is not a building. We talked about this. A building is simply a place to meet. I'm not going to an exclusive clubhouse when I go to church. The church is not a nonprofit organization with a clear vision statement and lucid objectives. I'm not joining an altruistic or philanthropic society when I join the church. But what is the church? We talked about this yesterday as well, but these go together. Knowing the church is knowing membership, right? They kind of go together. The church is a regular assembly of people who profess and give evidence that they have been saved by God's grace alone, for his glory alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The church is a local, living, and loving collection of people who are committed to Christ and committed to each other. The church is a display of God's wisdom and glory, and the church is a display of countercultural Christ-like love. Now, I'm sorry I told you guys if you have your pens ready because you're going to have to write stuff. I have here after this kind of like, so talking about church membership. Okay. How can I put this? Okay, if I'm going to make a claim about something in the Bible, your immediate first response should be, show me in Scripture. Amen? That's what we want to see. I don't care what you say, Wally. Where's in Scripture? I just want to preface something with not all truths that are found in Scripture are explicit. Now, before you accuse me of, like, trying to talk about secret knowledge, let me me explain that, okay? What I mean explicit is that it's not written out always as direct as we think it should be. Does that make sense? So I'll give you an example. Like, have you heard this argument? The Bible, Jesus doesn't say he's God. Where is the verse where he says, I am God? And I would say, well, where he says, before Abraham was, I am. But he didn't say God, so that doesn't mean that. But in the context and the culture, it was very clearly that is a statement of his deity. A lot of things that he did are clear implications that he is God. Okay? Or think about the Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, and we've never claimed it to be. Hopefully, if you have claimed it to be, you repent of that, because that's not true. The Trinity is simply a word we've used to explain a clear teaching in Scripture. We just put a word to it, right? But if you look at all the proof texts of God being one in essence and three in persons, it's all over, right? When it comes to membership, and this is my conjecture, um, so I'm just going to make that clear. The reason why there isn't something explicit like, you need to have local membership. It needs to be formal. It needs to be a list. The reason it doesn't have that, because in one sense, it's, all, it's so obvious that it need not be stated that way. Does that make sense? Just think about the history of the church of God. They have always been a distinct people, have they not? They have always been separate from the rest of the world. There have always been rules and regulations and how are you to act when you are covenanted with God as his people. The New Testament is not separated from that belief. It is just a fullness or a, a, a better version of what you saw in the Old Testament. Right? What's One of the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the Old Covenant included moms, dads, children, but not every one of them was actually one of God's people. Right? They could live their entire life, they're circumcised, they're doing all the things, but not all Israel is Israel. The new covenant is vastly superior because the reality of it is every single member of that body is for sure a born-again believer. Why? Because it's God-driven. Yes, sir.
Exactly right, exactly right. Now let me just make this little note. There is, we, we sometimes describe it as the church visible and the church invisible. When we talk about that, we just simply say, in God's eyes, <laughs> trust me, everyone who's a believer is in God's church, okay? From the visible eye, we can be a congregation, and we can all meet, and we can all be actual formal members, but not all of us are actually believers. Not because God's covenant's a lie, but practically speaking in the fallen world from a finite mind and me not have, being able to, we not being able to see everything, there are goats here. There are wolves here. It's just a reality, okay? So you need to distinguish that from your mind, right? In God's perspective, he has a list of all the believers in the book of life. Everyone in this people are doing just fine, and they're good. But the reality of practice of that is when you live in this world, you're going to have people who come in who, who believe they are actually believers, and they are not. Does that make sense? So there's a distinct, distinguishing mark there. Now, I'm going to try to argue membership from this position. I'm going to give you five pieces of evidence I think the Bible gives that if these, if membership was not meant to be local, specific, one moment, I'm going to call Commands of God would be diminished or minimized, okay? So that's going to be how I'm going to argue. I'm going to show things that, five things that the Bible calls the New Testament believers to do, and you're going to have to ask yourself this question. If a membership isn't meant to be specific, intentional, then how are these things possible to do, okay? So I, I should have written these down. It sounds like such a main point, right? I didn't write it down. I'm dumb. Okay, so at the end, at the back of the page, you can write this down. Number one, the church is to discipline its members, Church is to discipline its members. Church membership is implied by the way the church is supposed to discipline its members. Consider the implications of Matthew 18, 15 through 17, where the church appears to be the final court of appeal in matters of church authority. This is what it says. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Here the courts or the, the church's position is almost the supreme court. It's the final say, right? Let me ask you the question. If the church is general, universal, vague, can that happen? I don't think so. Well, one second. Number two, excommunication exists. Church membership is implied by the simple fact that excommunication even exists in the first place. Paul implies this in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13, where he deals with the necessity of putting someone out of the church. He says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So once again, excommunication. You're taking someone out of a community. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13. So here are the two implications. One, that there is a in the church, 
and there is an outside the church group. Being in the church is definable. The other implication is that a person can be removed from being in the church. Such a formal removal would not be possible if there was no such thing as a clear membership. Okay, number three. Christians required to submit to their leaders. Christians required to submit to their leaders. Church membership is implied in the biblical requirement of Christians to be submitted to a group of church leaders, elders, or pastors. The point here is that without membership, who is it that the New Testament is referring to who must submit to a specific group of leaders? Some kind of expressed willingness or covenant or agreement or commitment has to precede a person's submission to a group of leaders. Consider, uh, yes, I'm getting there. Consider the way the New Testament talks about the relationship of the church to her leaders. So Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Another verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And then the last one, 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the question you ask again is, how is this leadership happening? And how is this submission going to work if there is no definite sense of commitment between who is to be the led and who is to be the leaders? These things, as we continue, become very difficult to practically outwork if you don't have a sense of a formal or clear membership. Number four, shepherds required to care for their flock. Church membership is implied in the way the New Testament requires elders to care for the flock and their charge. Of course, elders can extend their love to anyone and everyone and should be an example of doing that within the limits of their ability, of course. But the question is whether the Bible tells elders that they are to have a special responsibility and care for a certain group, a group of members. Consider Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This verse doesn't somehow prevent the visit of unbelievers or not yet members, but it seems to make clear that their first responsibility is to a particular flock. How are they to know who that flock is? Who are the elders over these flock? How do we, we would have no understanding of this without clear membership. Think about also in 1 Peter 
5, verses 2 through 3. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but be examples to your flock. Those in your charge (laughs) implies that the elder knew whom they were responsible for. This is just another way of talking about membership. It's not using the words that we would like to hear, but it's the same concept here. And then the last metaphor, and we talked about this with Brother Matthew last week, was the metaphor of the body. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 12-31. Um, so we know this, right? I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read maybe verse 12. It says, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. This imagery raised for the local church How are we supposed to understand when he says some of you are ears, some of you are noses, some of you are whatever other body part? There is a relationship amongst people that they have giftings that they work. First of all, they're meant to serve one another, and they only work well when they're in tandem, when we're all together, right? We mean the universal church? Is that practically happen? That can't happen. You can't serve with your gifting to everybody in the world, every Christian in the world. That's something that has to practically happen in a local congregation. And then the question once again is, well, who are the people I am to serve with this gift? One thing I want to make sure we understand, because we might be prone to think this. So what are you saying, Wally? Christians only serve Christians? We don't serve no one else? Of course not. What you need to understand, though, is Christians should have a particular love for God's people. Do you understand that? It's very important to understand. God has a love for his creation but he has a special love for his bride. And why is that so? Because he bled and died and lived and raised for his bride. And so if, God, if Christ finds his people at Precious, who's going to be his forever bride in the future, which we are part of, you think that somehow your love for them should be somehow in the same level as every other relationship you have? That's foolish thinking. And I honestly believe this is an area that we have a problem with in America. One second. I'm going to go on a rant for a second. I think because we have it so nice in America that Christians aren't really persecuted the way they used to be and are in other nations, we don't see and we don't desire and we don't experience oftentimes what it's like to love the brethren actually. And the reason is, is because for the most part, day to day, we can just come to church, no problems. You ain't getting fired yet for being a Christian, most of us. You ain't being killed for being a Christian, I don't think any of us, right? And so what it can be like, if practically speaking, being a Christian, if you don't go deeper beyond the surface level, it's just being part of a club, right? Your club meets on Sunday and sometimes Wednesday, right? The problem is when you find Christianity in times of where being a Christian, when you say, I'm going to be a Christian, it's saying yes to Christ in a real, literal, practically way. It's saying no to the world. You may die now being associated with Christian. You might lose job and you might lose a lot of things because of it. Who are you going to run to? Are you, are you going to run to your coworkers? No, you're going to run to people who have the same belief as you. You guys are both running that race together. You're going to die for that. But we often don't feel the weight of that here because we have it really good in terms of like 
physical things, right? Like food, water, shelter, peace. And so that's to our detriment, right? Now, I don't want to say America's evil, blah, blah. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that one of the disadvantages of being a Christian in a first world country is that that weight of being like, dude, like think about it. Like these guys would be imprisoned and they're like, shoot, like no one's going to get them. They're not going to feed them in that prison. Like, we have to get them food. But if we get them food, they're going to know we're Christian too. So we could get put to prison too. What are we going to do? Are you just going to be like, well, you know what? There's 20 of us, one of him. Eh, he's going to heaven anyway. No, their love for them said, you know what? I'm going to give them the food, and I might be in prison. If I go in prison, will you help us? And we're going to keep doing this. If we all die, we all die. But it's not going to be because we aren't showing love. It's because we're going to die showing love. And think about what Jesus says. Jesus says, thank you for sheltering me and feeding me food when I was in prison. And everyone's like, wait a second, Lord, like, I didn't do that to you. He's like, when you do it for the least of mine, you do it for me. A real practical way of showing your love for Christ is how you love the believers. I think all of us, I believe, we all believe we would help believers if the situation was that dire. The problem is I think we would only help people in that desire. And that would almost never happen. It has never happened. And many of you guys have seen your whole life and that's never happened. You have to ask yourself, how are you loving Christians that way in the day to day? Part of why discipleship is such a hard thing to get moving in the church is because it's really the only real tangible way of sacrifice you're going to feel. It costs you time, money, and energies, and resources, and emotional like peace to disciple someone. Because think about what you're doing. You are now putting your life aside to try to show someone more of Christ. And you're gonna, they're going to sin against you, and they're going to rebel against you, and it's going to cost you all that free time you used to have to watch your favorite shows and just to chill. Or maybe you're retired, and you're like, finally, I have free time. But you're called that the older would teach the younger. And so I would tell you right now, if you're not actively participating in discipleship, whether it's you pouring into others or you being seeking the pouring of older to you, I think that's a very practical way of showing you don't understand what it means to love your brothers and sisters. You don't see the weight of what we are, which is family. Okay? Okay, rant over. So, um, those are the five main points I want you to consider that these are things that God commands us to do and they would not, they would be diminished or minimized if the church did not have a clear membership. Some other reasons I give here, and these are on the sheet, but these are the lesser arguments, I think. Uh, Paul's formal exclusion of the sinner at Corinth presupposes formal inclusion. We talked about that a little bit. Paul's reference to the majority in 2 Corinthians 6-7, through seems to refer to a group commonly recognized as the church members. The early church kept a list of widows. Interesting. Just widows, right? We don't want to know who the believers are, just widows, huh? Okay. <laughs> That's, yes. That's right. Amen. Amen. Yeah, that's a really good point. So essentially what he's saying is, okay, we're all called to love, even our enemies, yeah? We're called to love God's people in particular, yeah? And then within God's people, there is also another sense of urgency that is people that have lost what is normally found in relationships, right? Having a spouse, having parents in your life, right? So there are these kind of, remember, love isn't all of this. Do you understand that? 
Uh, but there is times when you have to do, for lack of better words, like a triage type of thing, right? Um, so that's just a reality, okay? Um, okay. God himself keeps a list of all believers. And God has always, and we talked about this from the Old Testament to the New, has always made a clear distinction between his people and the world, right? So, I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish this, but so those are kind of the points, okay? So, I just want to make sure I'm not just trying to fill you with facts so you can just now affirm a more biblically accurate thing. I want you to think about these things so you can live it well. Some of you aren't members here, okay? Look, you're not going to move. I don't want you to move if it's not seen in Scripture for you. I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of and often the reasons people aren't members is not because it's a doctrinal issue. Like many problems with obedience to God's word, it's some tension of morality. I don't want to do it. It's costly. If I'm a member, now I'm accountable. Now I'm like in the spotlight. You see that guy got kicked out of the church? I don't want to be that guy. I don't want my sit on this plate. That is a poor, poor understanding of membership because the only thing you can see in that perspective is you. And even then, you're just seeing it's all about me, you, right? I think it's okay to see yourself as important in membership, but this is how you should see it. Dude, I'm a wretch. I deceive myself daily of things that I think I'm doing right and I'm not. And there are things I'm not doing, but how can I know? Because I'm by myself. Yes, I have the word, I have this word, but the Bible keeps telling me that I'm supposed to be part of a family, and I want that. I want to be with people who are older than me and can teach me. I want to be able to use my gifts because what are they for if I can't give them to God's people? That should be the heart of what membership is, not this, well, it doesn't suit me, and I don't like this, and it doesn't fit this. That is the wrong heart, okay? I don't know what that says. I'm assuming I have like 10 minutes or something. Oh, five. Oops, that sucks. Okay. So, <laughs> well, that's, uh, <laughs> okay. So let me, one second, I got to. The good thing is, even though I didn't finish, I think I always try at the very least to get you the root. If you can get the root, then you can, by God's grace, work out the fruit. Does that make sense? So I just want you to walk out knowing, like, okay, membership is something that is seen throughout all of Scripture. Oh, here's another thing. Yeah, I'm not going to get through all this. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> it's not happening. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Okay, what I am going to say is this. Let's say that you disagree with something in membership. Okay? The thing that I want you to think about is this. Do you go to this church consistently? If that's true of you, then you need to understand that whether you admit it or not, you are submitting yourself to the pastor and elders of this church. I don't know about you guys, but these guys aren't doing it for money or fame. They're doing it because they love Christ, therefore they love you, and they love us, they love me. If they are saying, hey guys, I believe this is the right way to apply scripture, and I really want us to do this, then you should probably, after testing, but even if there's like, if your disagreement's not like a sinful problem, then you should probably just submit to it. Here's the reality. Leaders are worthy of double honor, but they will also be judged more based on the authority they were given. Does that make sense? Part of understanding submission and headship or leadership is knowing that sometimes or many times your role is not to try to be a better leader than someone. Many times your role in that moment is to submit doing it for the Lord and allowing the consequences to go 
because that's not your place. Your place is, am I honoring Christ by submitting how God wants me to? Does that make sense? And so if you have maybe some reservations about this, first of all, I would say go to your pastors and learn more of the details. But if you get to a point and you can honestly look at your heart and be like, dude, I just don't like it. It's not, uh, it's not like a biblical, I just don't like it. Then it's better for you to repent of that hard-heartedness and then to just submit and pray that God change your heart along the way. Does that make sense? Because the way our church works, if we want to just not even worry about it universally, but our church has been set up in such a way that a lot of the practices that we talked about are done within a church membership. Discipline, accountability, support. Yes, these things can happen outside, but if your pastor is saying, this is where we want it, this is where we believe it honors God, and you're like, no, then not only are you disregarding the leadership that God has put in front of you, which I then wonder, why do you even come and listen to the sermons? Because if you're not going to submit to that, then why are you even submitting to anything? But the second thing, the second thing is, oh, no, 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 don't lose it. Oh, man, one second. Uh, dang it, <laughs> I lost it. Okay. Your church says this is the way we worship. You don't have to be here. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If it's against your conviction, I don't want you to go, but I'd rather you go than you stumbling every single day. Does that make sense? But if you're going to be here, please don't try to like split and divide. Like, oh, I'm just going to do this part. I'm just going to do this part. Try to be wholeheartedly faithful to the Lord and what the leaders are telling you to do. They will be held accountable if they do things wrong. And also, just because we're a congregation, this will be this will be important because one of the Baptist distinctives is that we are also called, because we're congregationally kind of assembled, we have the power and we ought to have the love and desire to want to correct the pastors if we see sin. Don't be afraid to do that. Any good pastor will be like, if I'm in sin, tell me, <laughs> right? So we're not like stuck here. There's not a tyrant king over here. If there was, trust me, we can work together and the Lord will move them out, okay? But our leadership has not shown that kind of behavior, our leadership time and time again, there's a faithfulness to the word and a willingness to drop any conviction they have if it is not in accordance with scripture, okay? We are a family, love each other, serve each other, build each other up before you try to stab each other and cut each other off, right? We often are very quick to do that, right? All right, I, th I think that's it. <laughs> so I'm gonna pray and I'll let you guys go. Uh, Father God, we're so thankful that we are members of your body. It is not something that we have to, Work for or merit, Father, but you have saved us fully and completely through Jesus Christ. And Father, we are just thankful that we can talk about how you have called us to live out this membership. We are members with every single believer around the world, but the common practice of doing what you call us to do happens in the day-to-day, -day, the week-to-week, -week, and that happens when the local congregation comes together. Lord, I just pray that you uh, bless this teaching, that you, even if it's just one thing, that they would see membership as good and right, because it is, Lord, because we are a family, and there's an importance to, to protect the flock, but don't ever forget it. We are always willing to have open doors to anyone who would confess Christ is Lord. Please, Lord, make us more useful members to your kingdom. Make us more useful members to one another. Allow us to love each other better. Let us allow us to sacrifice for one another as if we do it to the Lord. For the Lord has first and foremost sacrificed all things to give us eternal life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.